Uh, good morning. I just feel like I need to pray for a moment because we just sang a song that said Jesus is at the center. And I, I don't know about you, but as I sang that song, I meant every word that I said, but I was flooded with moments in my week where that just wasn't true. Where the center was Jeff. So will you just join me in just a brief word of confession? And that Jesus would be truly the center of us today. That we would hear from him. And that when we leave, he will remain the center of our lives. So God, we confess to you that we've declared in a song that you are the center and that nothing else matters. But the truth of being human is that we lived differently this week. There were plenty of moments in my own life where you weren't the center. Where there were a lot of things that mattered that weren't about you. So help us, God. We confess that to you and we, we know that we are forgiven. We've also sang songs about being set free. So thank you for that forgiveness. But now, God, help us. Help us be the kind of church, the kind of community that strives more and more to make you the center of all of our lives, the center of this church, so that we can be about your business. Amen. This summer, we went on a couple road trips as a family, and I am a, a sucker for stopping at really large gas stations off the 99 or the 5. I like perusing like the beef jerky section at places, or the vintage candy part. But we were at one stop in particular on our way up to Mount Hermon, and as I was walking around this large um, gas station, they had a Jesus section. And it was really interesting. They had all kinds of Jesus toys and things. And, and some of the things that I remember, they, they had a, a Jesus bank, like a, a piggy bank, but it was Jesus. And underneath it said, Jesus saves, so should you. Um, right? Then there was a bubble bath. There was like a Jesus bubble bath. And if you use this bubble bath, it'll wash away your sins, right? And then there were two action figures. There was like this very stoic very children's Bible Jesus, very slender, very peaceful Jesus action figure. And then there was like a muscle Jesus. There was like the real carpenter Jesus, right? You don't have to go off the five or the 99. Just as we go about our daily life and we go to stores, we can probably brainstorm several stores that have Jesus portrayed in some kind of clothing or some kind of uh, piece of junk, really. And there's lots of those things, even, even at Christian bookstores, and the reality is that the cultural portrayal of Jesus can be very confusing for us. Right? Some of these things really emphasize the reality that Jesus was fully God. So you can get some bubble bath and have your sins washed away, right? Or, or you can emphasize his humanity and get a shirt or a bracelet that says, Jesus is my, my homeboy. Right? The reality is that if we just look at how culture portrays Jesus, it leans extremely in one way or the other either that he was fully God or that he was fully human. And this week in Article 4, we learn about what we really believe about the person of Jesus. And Carol read it and Annie said it, and we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And this morning we're going to dive into some scripture in the book of John that declares and illustrates this belief that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And this is really important this week in my shared faith group, we're getting together at lunchtime, 
and, and looking at the video and going through the curriculum, my, my friend Adam Stiles said, this is a pivotal article because this is where all the other religions and cults that connect to Jesus kind of go off into their own direction. Right? Like if Jesus isn't fully God, he can be a prophet, he can be a moral teacher, he can be something other than fully God, and yet there have also been cults and religions that really can't wrap their minds around that, that, that God would take on flesh and that Jesus would have anything to do with humanity, and that was just like a shell, but he was all God. In Christianity, we often talk about following Jesus, and we ought to know who we're following. We ought to know who we're singing to when we declare Jesus be at the center. And we have to recognize that there's a tension. Just as in our, when we looked at the Trinity, trying to wrap our own human brains around how three in one can be, I, I think the same thing is true when we think about Jesus being both fully God and fully human. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Because when we read through the scriptures, I think we pick up on his deity, his godness. Because who else can simply speak and people are raised from the dead? Who else can, can pray and fish and, 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 and bread become food for 5,000? And yet, you have to look a little more subtly in the scriptures. When we hear and see emotion that Jesus experienced, like loneliness or tiredness, or when he was hungry, right? Because we have a God who doesn't get tired, but Jesus experienced tiredness. He's fully human. So this morning, let's embrace the tension and look together at the person of Jesus. And my prayer is that both his humanity and his deity will speak to us in a profound way. And so will you please stand for the reading of God's word together. We're going to be in John chapter 1. Some of these scriptures will be on the screen and some of them won't be. But join me in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, where we'll start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been. John 1, moving to verse 14. The same Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. 
This is the word of God. Please be seated. We will get to the water and to the wine in a moment. It's an amazing story that I think oftentimes we don't really look at and see the significance of it. But let's first lay a foundation for what we're trying to teach today. In chapter 1, in the book of John, is the prologue to the entire book. And as John wrote that gospel, he was very careful that in that first chapter you will see words and you will see themes and you will see phrases that are going to be built upon throughout the rest of the book of John. And he was very intentional about his words, not just because it was a creative writing in some ways, because these themes would continue throughout, but also he was very aware of his audience. And as much as he was speaking to, to Jewish community, he was also talking to a Greek world. And so when he starts his gospel saying, in the beginning, those who would have heard this or read this would understand that those are the very same words that start the book of Genesis. In the beginning. See, where the other three gospels start the story of Jesus at his birth or the narrative of his conception, John points back much farther. He's not starting at when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't start at the birth story of Jesus. He uses the same words that start the entire story of God. And he says, in the beginning, and he places Jesus at the formation of the world and prior to the creation of the universe. This is very intentional language. And then he says, in the beginning was the Word. And throughout the prologue, we will see this Word, the Word, over and over and over again. And we could have a whole sermon explaining why that is and what that meant, but I will let somebody smarter than me explain it to us. D.A. Carson, an incredible New Testament theologian, says this, In short, God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate disclosure, the person of his own son. So when we read that word, that might seem odd to us, but those at that time, God's salvation, his, his, his power, that was all caught up in God's word. And you can read throughout the Old Testament that when God's word showed up, it was a profound experience. And so now Jesus being referred to as the Word, is being placed at the very beginning, making sure that the reader knows that Jesus is not just merely some human being that was born, but that He has been in existence since the very beginning, and that He and the Father are one, and there's been nothing that has been made apart from Him. That Jesus, although in human form, that the Gospel will go into, that Jesus is fully God. John intends that the rest of this gospel be read in light of this truth. That the very words, the very actions, the very deeds of Jesus are the very words and actions and deeds of God. That these two are connected. Jesus being fully God. Just a few verses later in verse 14, we read that the same word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this idea of, of, of God becoming flesh was extremely controversial. In fact, if this never happened and, and, and there was never Jesus coming on earth, we would think it's insane as well. In fact, when people claim that they are God, when they're human beings, we turn a, a, an odd eye to that. Like, how can that be? 
Now remember, if the Greek audience is important to God, it's important to note that at this time, there was a, to be Greek, you had a view of the body and the physical world that was very negative. The body was something to kind of endure and to escape. In fact, the physical body was more like a jail that held your soul and your spirit and that the spiritual world was one to obtain and one to get to. If you're familiar with Greek philosophers, you know that this is true. And so for a Greek to hear that God would put on, and the Greek word is sarx, flesh, for God to put on flesh, that would have just blown their mind. It would have piqued their interest because that was a thought that, had, that would never have been entertained. That the gods and the spiritual world was far away from the physical world. And that the physical world was one to kind of escape and endure and ultimate reality was out there, over there. And now John is saying that Jesus, who he makes the case first, right, is God. He has been since the beginning that this same word has become flesh, has dwelt among us. John is making it very clear that Jesus not only is fully God, but that Jesus is human as well. And finally, at the end of 14, we find this endorsement where John says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's a personal endorsement. He's saying there's this word that from the very beginning of time, has been, and the same word put on flesh, and I've seen it. I've seen his glory. And we're going to keep talking about it for several more chapters, so join in the story of Jesus. It's a brilliant prologue. If you've, this is why when people start following Jesus, often we tell them, read the book of John, because it just goes, and it's beautiful, and it has themes throughout. And so if we're going to understand that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, and why that matters, that's why we're going to look at John 2. We're going to look at this, this moment in Jesus' life, his first miracle recorded in the book of John, right? where we find that Jesus and Mary and some of his disciples, he has five of them at this time, they're at a wedding. And we see that the, the wedding has run out of wine, and Mary goes to Jesus and says, we're out of wine. Jesus has this pretty harsh reaction to his mom. And then she says, do whatever he says. And then we see this miracle where he tells them to fill these stone basins, 20 to 30 gallons, fill it, and then draw from it. And as they drew from what they had just filled with water, it came out as wine. And they took the wine to the head waiter, and the head waiter tasted it. And he was so moved by it. He said, this is the best wine we've ever had at a wedding. Usually serve this stuff first, but you've served it last. And everybody goes on enjoying the wedding. What on earth would that story have to do with Jesus being fully God and fully human? Well, let me make some suggestions. One. There are three aspects to this story that I think are really, really important. The first one is notice the humble environment. There's a very humble environment. Cana, the the town, was ten minutes away from where Jesus grew up, where Jesus lived in Galilee. There's nothing extravagant about the city of Cana. It's a normal town, very normal people. The wedding is at a house. It's not in the temple, it's not at a palace, it's, not at a, it's in a normal town 10 minutes away from where Jesus grew up. It's a wedding that both Jesus and his mothers were, invi- were invited to, so we can kind of infer that this is probably a family friend, maybe somebody that grew up with Jesus or one of his brothers. Jesus is just being a normal human, taking part in a celebration, taking part in a family friend's wedding. And it's important to notice that the wedding culture of that time is very different than ours. Although you can make the argument that our wedding culture extends is way too severe. 
But then if you had a wedding, the wedding would go sometimes up to a week. So people would travel to come to this wedding. People would set up arrangements to have their their job taken care of. You would take time off of work. The financial responsibility of the wedding at that time was on the groom's family. And being a father of two boys, I'm so thankful that we have moved past that. (laughs) Praise be to God. We have to remember also this is a shame culture. So if if people have come and taken time off work and kind of said, we're going to be here for a week to celebrate this wedding, it would have been awful to run out of supplies. It would have been so disrespectful to your guests for them to come and for you not to be able to deliver on the very event that you've asked them to come to. So when Jesus' mother is kind of panicking, again, it's another suggestion that they're really close to this bride and groom. They know what's happening. You have to also remember that wine in Jewish culture at this time is a big deal. It's also important to know that they diluted the wine, so they didn't just drink like the wine we have for days on end. It was diluted a lot. But wine was just a symbol of, of being together. It was central to the Jewish community. So not only just to run out of supplies, but to run out of wine would be incredibly disrespectful. The point is this, that this isn't a scene that anybody expected the Messiah to be at. There were a lot of messianic expectations. People were waiting for God to send the Messiah to redeem the world. And they were waiting so long that they had specific expectations. And it wasn't somebody who would grow up in a humble little town and go ten ten miles down the road and be at a wedding at somebody's house to be the first place where he unveiled his power. No, no, they thought the Messiah was going to be someone who had an army with them, who was going to overthrow the government, who was going to come in force, who was going to reform the world. Or they thought the Messiah would be one who took all the faithful, just the very faithful people, and said, let's go, let's escape this world, let's go set up our own little enclave out somewhere else in the rest of the world. No, they had huge expectations. Nobody would pick that the Messiah would be one born in a manger who was a carpenter, who grew up in a town and who would be at just a normal everyday wedding in a very simple place. Nobody also, I think, would expect that the Messiah would be celebrating at a wedding, would be taking part in a very human experience, a very beautiful human experience. Wouldn't you agree? You ever been to a wedding and on your way home or leaving, you just go, that was just so good. There was just something so right about that. The love, the joy, the celebration, the party. So we have a Jesus who starts his ministry at a humble home. He starts his ministry at a party. He's alongside his friends and his family celebrating. This, to me, shows the humanity of Jesus. Because those are environments that you and I are in, hopefully, often. It's not what one would expect. It's not how one would write the story about the Messiah. And it's certainly not the scene you would write saying, here's how he's going to do a miracle. He's going to do it here and with these things. It's an unlikely beginning. It's a humble environment. It's not only a humble environment, then the story moves from this humble environment to what we'll call the pivotal conversation. There is this interaction between Mary and Jesus that is really important to understand what's happening. Right, Mary comes to Jesus in a moment of panic. So we, again, it would suggest that Mary is so close to the couple or to these families that she has access to what's happening in the kitchen 
or in the place where they were preparing the food and the wine, and she knows, she knows, she's not just a normal wedding guest. She knows that their friends are about to face this disgrace. So she comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And I think sometimes, because we know what will happen, we know that Jesus is, this is just going to be the start of him doing powerful things. I think sometimes we read that and we go, she knew that he had secret powers. So she was coming to Jesus in a moment of panic for him to flex his Messiah muscles and to change the situation. And I want to tell you, I believe that Mary was coming to Jesus not as the Messiah. She was coming to Jesus as her son. Right? Joseph hasn't been on the scene. We haven't heard anything from Joseph since after the temple incident when he was a young boy. So we can assume that Joseph has died. He is the oldest son. And even in our culture, the oldest son with a widowed mom, you have a responsibility to be her place of support, to be a resource for her. So when Mary is coming to Jesus saying, they're out of wine, this isn't good, I don't believe that she's coming to Jesus as the Messiah. She's coming to Jesus as she has many times in her life for, for an idea, for resource. But there's something in this pivotal conversation that changes because I believe Mary starts the conversation talking to her son. She leaves the conversation having encountered the Messiah. Because Jesus' response doesn't match, really, the situation. We find Jesus saying, woman, why are you messing with me? What should I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. It's a rebuke. It's Jesus changing the relationship with his mom a little bit. It's him putting a little distance between him and his mom because all of a sudden he is moving from being her son to being the son of God publicly. That his ministry is about to get started publicly for the first time. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And we'll read later when his hour comes. And his hour had not yet come. But the moment he was going to have that miracle started ticking the clock until his hour to die on that cross would come. And he knew that full well. He knew that this was the moment. If he flexed those Messiah muscles, if he was the one who was going to step in and do something at this moment, this was the beginning of the road to the cross for him. And Mary, in her faith, it's beautiful, isn't it? Because I don't think as a parent I can do this. She allowed the relationship to change. She didn't say, why are you talking to me like that, Jesus? Get over here, Jesus. Right? As a youth pastor, one of the hardest things, I, it's such a huge blessing to be able to be at a church where, where, where I've been so long, where there are kids who were kids and now they're adults. And I remember a year ago, we were at a restaurant and one of our old high school students was over there and ordered dessert to come to our table. And it was this moment of like, oh my gosh, that person is an adult now. You're not like 14 and I'm chasing you down to get your camp sign up stuff. You're an adult. You make way more money than me. <laughs> Buy my whole meal, please. Right? Isn't it hard to watch the transition from someone, either our own children or children that we're involved in, and we realize they're an adult, and there's a transition that happens in this moment. It's a transition where Jesus isn't just her son, but now all of a sudden he's being obedient to his father, and it's time to get started. It's incredible to, in this pivotal conversation to see the humanity and the divinity of Jesus displayed. And Mary's response to her son, she allows the relationship to change and she says, do whatever he says. Faith. 
Trust. Understanding that whatever you say, son, whatever you say, Messiah, it's a pivotal, pivotal conversation. And from that humble environment to the pivotal conversation, we have the glory being revealed. The deity of Jesus being unveiled in this environment. And the beautiful thing about the book of John is that there are all kinds of different layers of meaning happening all the time. So when we read the narrative and we just live at the wedding, let's just live in that experience at the wedding, knowing that Jesus is, the dignity of the couple is on the line. The reputation of their friends is on the line. Jesus comes in this moment and he tells the servants, fill these 20 to 30 gallon bins full of water and then draw it out, take it to the banquet. And all of a sudden the wine is there. And what what happens? He saves the dignity of the people. That the embarrassment that was coming to them never came. They never knew about it. In fact, nobody ever knew about it except Jesus, his disciples, his mom, and the servants. We'll get to that in a minute. Jesus comes into that moment, and isn't that going to be a foreshadowing of the very life of Jesus throughout the rest of the gospel? That there are going to be situations and circumstances where people are in despair, where people aren't right, where it's messed up, where people are dead. And Jesus, by his presence, comes in and changes the circumstance, changes the the reality. That in this first miracle, if we're just living at the wedding, we see that human beings, and and they're, they're thriving, and the joy in their life matters to God. That Jesus comes in that moment where some of us would go, it's just a wedding, It's just a party. These things happen. No, Jesus says, no, that matters. So I'm going to enter this because I care about the way you experience life as a human being. I'm going to save you from this. And if we just left it at that, that's a marvelous thing. That's a marvelous way of understanding the glory of God. Right? That you and I live a life that Jesus understands and he walks with us. And when we come to a situation in life, we have a Messiah who wants to be there with us to deliver us from the tough parts of life, from the embarrassing parts of life. But then John has all this other meaning. So when we dig into it and we see that, what does he have them fill? These 20 to 30 uh, gallon stone basins that were used, listen to the detail, for ceremonial washing. Right, these would have been the basins that held water, that, that for to do to live out the Jewish faith, the Jewish customs. This is where you would draw the water. So, entering a home or entering the temple, you would draw water from this kind of basin. This would be the kind of basin where you washed your hands before you ate meals, before you had prayers, before you would do things. These basins were kind of central to the Jewish identity. So, for Jesus to use these basins. To do this miracle, there's something bigger happening. What does he do? He uses these basins, fills them with water, and it turns into wine. Some symbolism? This old way of connecting to God. There's a new way coming. And this new way isn't going to be marked by ritual. This new way isn't going to be marked by following all the rules. This new way is going to be marked by wine. We know later that what will be done at the Last Supper will be wine, the very cup, the covenant, the new blood 
the symbol of God's ultimate sacrifice, the symbol of the new covenant is happening in this moment. So not only do we have a Jesus who enters into this human experience and allows his glory to be revealed so that, so that the human being and the human experience can flourish and enjoy and have a great time. We have a Jesus who in that same moment does something beyond humanity, reaches to the way the world works and says there's a new way coming. And this new way, it's not about the rules, it's not about the customs, it's not about the way you thought. It's now going to be marked by this new covenant, this new agreement, my blood, the wine. It's powerful, friends. It's a story soaking with the reality that we have a Jesus who enters fully into the human experience, but we have a Jesus who is fully God. And isn't it interesting that the very first people to witness this were the servants? Won't that be a theme? That the people on the margins, the people who don't have access to the actual wedding but are there to serve, will be the ones that first see his glory. We will see that over and over and over again. Where Jesus redefines the human experience, saying, guess what, it's not just about your own flourishing, it's about flourishing for everybody. So the least of these matter. The poor matter. The outcasts matter. Those with disabilities matter. Make their flourishing part of your calling. So what does this mean for us? How can we allow the truth of Jesus being fully God and fully human soak into our being? I want to suggest just a couple of things. One, we go back to that humble environment I think oftentimes we fail to see Jesus in our own humble environments. That when we think about God's presence and the presence of Jesus in our lives, that we lean towards the divinity piece. So we come here, we come to church, and Jesus is really thick here. But but Ben, on my commute, I'm not feeling Jesus on that. Or, or, or just my normal day-to-day doing, the things at my work that I can't stand, I fail to recognize that, his, that he's among me. So I think for some of us this morning, the challenge is this. Realizing that Jesus understands what it is to be human. The tensions, the difficulty, the joy And Jesus is right there with us in those moments, not just these deity moments, not just when everything's awesome or when we're in a big church, but he's right there in the day-to-day humble environments. That's one thought. The other thought is this. Have you done any celebrating with Jesus lately? It's really not our reputation as Christians. Our reputation as Christians is we follow Jesus and then everything gets very serious. And we say no to a lot of things. We can't be there. Or we'll come to just a portion of something. Friends, I'm looking at this. Jesus was at a wedding, a seven-day wedding. He kept the party going. (laughs) He could have just said, hey, wine, let's go. No, he kept it going. The human experience, being human, and, and the joy, and the laughter, and the fun is something that Jesus knows and something he models to us in this story. I'm going to a wedding this afternoon. And outside of paying for babysitting, I'm actually really excited about it. 
Because there's just, it's going to be fun. We were at a party last night. It's fun. I, I think sometimes, honestly, we need to lighten up a little bit. We need to be okay that these feelings... Really? All right. So party at my house next week. Bring your own whatever. Um. Have you seen Jesus and the joy of life? Experience the fun of life and the depth of joy with Jesus. I think some of us, we need to do that again. And we're not just waiting for it to be awesome someday in heaven. It's awesome now at times. But, but the ones I'm most thinking about this morning are those of us who need to have a very pivotal conversation with Jesus. Where maybe Jesus to us isn't the Messiah yet. Maybe he's an intriguing person. Maybe someone we're curious about. Maybe we, we actually believe he's a great moral teacher. But, but, but I just wonder if today, today, that pivotal conversation needs to happen for some, some people in this room. Where Jesus declares who he really is and your response could be that of Mary. I'll do whatever you say. I'm ready to follow. That you could start a conversation with Jesus as hidden something and you leave with him being your Messiah. That's my hope for so many of you this morning. And that his glory would be revealed in your life. That the situations you face as a human that are hard, that you see Jesus in those moments, Jesus wanting to come in and to redeem them and to enter them, but also to recognize that there's something bigger happening. And as much as he redeems those individual moments, he's about a new way of living, a new identity, new clothes. Is it time to to sign up for that and to say, I'm ready to follow? We'll talk about that in a moment, but this morning we have someone who is declaring that to us this morning. That's why we do baptism. And so this morning we have an opportunity to watch a life that has basically said that, like, you are the Messiah of my life. So in response and as an encouragement to where we've been this morning, let's participate in this baptism together.